Uh, but we're in the book of Galatians. So again, if you're new or visiting, we've been walking through the book of Galatians. Uh, we're there again today. Uh, but really, uh, instead of taking larger sections, which we've been doing, I want to dig deep for the next couple Sundays, just talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, so if you have a copy of God's Word and you want to turn uh, to Galatians 5, 22 through 23, that's the main text. Um, if you're a note taker and you have the note sheet, uh, I have some other scriptures on there, some cross-references that I'm going to be mentioning. I'm not going to have the scripture on the screen this morning. We're just going to have the notes on, on scripture this morning. Uh, so if, if, after, if you don't have a set of notes and you want that, uh, maybe raise your hand and if we have extra copies... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw Matt under the bus again, and, and he can help. I, I know Miss Doctor wanted one. That's kind of why I mentioned that. I, I, thought, I thought you might. Uh, but if there's any other ones, then, then, then let us know. And if we don't have enough copies, I can make some uh, after that if you'd like to. But um, spring is here. I'm happy about spring. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm happy about the spring. Uh, I don't know if you are. Uh, I'm happy about the summer. I'm not a huge fan of, you know, fall and winter and all those other um, seasons. I, I, guess, I, I guess that's it. There's only four, right? So uh, I like spring because that means summer is coming. Now, with spring also comes some activities, right? We just had the church work day, which, by the way, thank you all for, for coming out. And, and you know what? Uh, let's give a round of applause just to thank you for those folks who did come out. It looks good. Yeah, it's clean in here. Uh, the, the, the leaves got raked up. We, we were able to help out the neighbors, and so, so thank you all for that. Um, but with spring comes those kind of things for us. That means beginning a garden, right? And so I love to garden. Now, the thing about gardening, and it, it's very satisfying when you get to harvest that produce, right? But it takes a little work. And so it's, I, I would like to say it's 50-50, but it's, it's, it's really not. It's more like 30, or it's more like 10 us, and then 70, or man, my math is often, it's more like 10 us, maybe even five us, and then 90 to 95 God, right? And what I mean by that is, okay, so we have, we have work to do. I've got to till the soil. We, we get, uh, we, we get uh, God's greatest fertilizer manure. We, we bring that in in the fall. I till that in, right? And then the spring comes and I, I till it in again and prepare, break up the soil. And then we'll, we'll lay some uh, ground cover over and we'll plant our our crop, whatever that is. Uh, for us, it's, it's normally a lot of squash and zucchini, uh, some beans, it's eggplant. Uh, for those of you who don't like eggplant, uh, we do. Uh, tomatoes, and then of course cucumbers. And we tried beets. Sometimes we'll try different things. We'll try sweet corn, we'll try beets, we'll try different things, and we'll, but we have our general crop, right? And so we, we plant that, and then we just, we wait, right? I mean, we water it when it needs to be watered. And that's the magnificent thing about this. That's why I mean it's kind of a, a 595 or a 1090 kind of breakup there is because, yeah, we do some of the work. We do some of the weeding. We do the planting and those kind of things. But really, God is the one who's doing the rest of it, right? I mean, he's allowing the sun to shine on those plants that's giving that the, the nutrients. The, the, the root system is growing by itself. It's, it's absorbing the nutrients from the soil. And so really we just are, are waiting for the crop to come in. I think that's a great illustration to what we're going to talk about today, about these fruits of the Spirit. There is some work that we should do, right? Paul talks about walk in step with the Spirit. We talked about that a little bit last week. And so if you weren't here, you can listen to that. But so there's, we need to be obedient to the Spirit's leading, but also we need to understand that that's like the 5% of it, and the other 95% is what God does in us, just like this garden. So as we look at this, as we take kind of a deeper dive this morning, over these next three weeks, I want you to be in mind about this. So 
What kind of seed you're putting in the soil is the kind of fruit that's going to bear. What you put in the soil, you, you know, that's, that's your part of the work, but the rest of it happens by some, an outside force working on you and then making this produce. It is a great blessing to harvest that produce, not only for yourself, but those around us. We share our crop with others and others share their crops with us. And so there's a lot of great things, and I think that's why Jesus uses those illustrations, right? I can't take that. That's his illustration. I'm just borrowing it. But as we get into this text, will you please join with me in prayer? God, we thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness. Lord, we confess that we need your spirit to produce in us any good thing. In our own power, we cannot produce love, joy, or peace. We thank you, Father, for sending your son, Jesus the Christ, to take our sin and shame upon himself and for giving us in return the gift of his spirit. We ask that you would grow in us, strengthen us, bear fruit in us for your glory and for our good, for the salvation and sanctification of those around us. And so we ask this day that to you would be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Uh, so let's begin with the word of God. It says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness and gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. Now, last week, I kind of uh, briefly touched these. We're going to cover them much more detail these next three weeks, but I had talked about, to me, it kind of looks like uh, these nine ones kind of break up into three groups of three. So today, the first group of three, and we talked about, okay, it's kind of our, our inclination towards God, our inclination towards self, and then our, our internal inclination, our, our heart inclination, right? And so today we're going to look at the first three. So let us begin with this examination, of course, beginning with love. Love is the first and the foremost because out of it springs all of the rest. This term for love, you may or may not know this, you probably do, but it's this term of agape love, self-sacrificial love, a love that doesn't think about itself but thinks about others, this spontaneous, undeserved affection directed toward an other. So, what is the biblical description of love? Well, I'm glad you asked. We have that written for us. Uh, see, that's the great thing about God's Word. It has everything we need for uh, life in godliness, right? Everything we need to follow Christ. So this description of love, you've heard it before. And if you're a note taker, it should be on the side there, or you can write it down if, you, if you'd like to. But it's 1 Corinthians 13, right? It's the, the ultimate description of love. We hear it at almost every wedding. Whether that poor couple up there understands that they need to practice those things or not, uh, we, we read it, right? And I think so often we hear it so often that we tend to take away the gravity from it. So love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. But I want to expose to you just for a minute that other places in Scripture too, it says that God is love. So if we look at that text, we have to be careful with just kind of inserting words and changing Scripture. We have to be really careful with that. But for a moment, let's substitute love for God God is patient and kind. God does not envy or boast. God is not arrogant or rude. God does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. And so you see, what I begin to, I hope for you to understand, is that the description of love has to be based on the Bible and what God says love is rather than what the world says love is. That's extremely important. Because our world today 
uh, we, we have to understand that God is love, and so then therefore love is from God, and we have this uh, description of love there. And do you know what it doesn't say? And in fact, I, I want to tell you one thing it does say. It says that love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. You see, our world today tries to tell us, here's a description of love. You do whatever makes you happy, right? Love is love. People have that on t-shirts. They have that on flags. They have that on bumper stickers. Love is love. Well, oh, okay. But also, no, not according to the description that the word gives. Uh, love rejoices at truth. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. So we have to be very careful when we think about the description of love. It has to be biblical. So God is love, absolutely. Uh, but then we have a description of this love, and we have to understand that love is from God. And we have to understand that we would not know love, not true love, apart from this description, apart from God. And so the world out there thinks they understand love, but they don't. What they understand is maybe lust. What they understand is maybe affection. What they understand is maybe you, you know a sense of care for one another. But it's not love in the real sense, in the real description. We only find that in God's Word. So it's very important that we start there. Love is the first evidence of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 13 later, in verse 13, it says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, and all these things, but the greatest of these of love. And so out of love of God, out of God's love for us, we understand love. And so then out of that, we understand how love is in practice. So we have to define that. So the description of love finds its fulfillment then, ultimately, in what I'm going to call divine love, Okay. And so you have divine love. So the description of love is, is kind of what we covered. I know that's vague, but that, that would be a whole other sermon series all to itself, right? So we'll, we'll move on from there. And so I want you to understand the description of love leaves us to the understanding of a divine love. Now, what do you mean by divine love, Pastor? I'm glad you asked. Divine love, I think, finds itself actually in two, subget, sub, two categories as well, okay? And I don't have them up here, but I'm going to tell you what they are right now. The first, John 3.16. You know that verse, right? But I'm going to read it to us. Anyway, just in case we don't. For the, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So this first layer of divine love is God's love for mankind, the divine love of the creator for his creation. You know, God didn't have to create us. A lot of us, I think, think that sometimes. Like God was up there in heaven, perfect unity with the Father, Son, and Spirit, right? He's up there in heaven, wringing his hands, thinking how bored he is. Uh, what am I going to do? Uh, there's, there's nothing for me to do. I, I know what I'll do. I'll create humans. That's not how it was. God was perfectly complete without us. I know our society tries to tell us, like, you know, we're the best thing since sliced bread. And because you're created in God's image, there's truth to that. But when you take a truth and you run with it too far, you end up into heresy. And so, yes, absolutely, but God doesn't need you. God wants you. He loves you. So this is this divine love in God's love for mankind. He made it in creation. He also shows us that in the incarnation. You know, we chose to sin. Humans went away from God, and yet he chooses to take on the flesh, this humility of the humanity, this servanthood, this long-suffering that he took on flesh to be with us so that also then he could take on the crucifixion and the redemption. And that's John 3.16. For God so loved the world, meaning all of humanity, right, that he sent Christ to die for those who would take him. So yes, Christ's atoning sacrifice works for 
It's, it's big enough to cover the whole world, but it's only effective for those who would receive that. And so then this love for mankind, the second part of this divine love, once we understand that divine love, once we've accepted that divine love, we then move to the second part, which is mankind's love for God. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. And so this divine love that God has for us then manifests itself in us towards a couple main things. Worship of him as the one true God. Romans talks about how they didn't do that, so he gave them over to their, the darkness of their minds, right? So worship of him as the one true God, but also obedience to him. Jesus talks about, like, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so you have then the description, which manifests itself into the divine love that we have, and then which, then that, so the divine love shows itself into three other parts. I know I'm kind of building this weird Christmas tree. If you were a note taker, you could probably find this. If not, you can listen to the sermon again, because we're recording it. So the divine love blossoms most fully in the three forms, first of which then I'm going to call domestic love. Domestic love. Husbands, it says in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Titus 2.4, And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. So we see this domestic love in two main parts, marriage and parenting. Husbands are to love their wives. Wives are to love their husbands. Parents are to love their children. Now, if you are not married today, that doesn't mean that you can't experience domestic love. If you are not a parent today, that doesn't mean you can't experience domestic love. This is, though, the primary mode that love is originally transmitted. We see that all the way back to Genesis, right? That they would become one flesh, be fruitful, and multiply. And so we see this as the first outpouring of that divine love in the context of domestic love. That's why in Ephesians, he goes on to say, and this mystery of this marriage is profound. I'm talking about Christ in the church. And so you see that idea of divine love in there. So this divine love blossoms into these, these, uh, these three categories, right? The domestic love. And then also the second is dedicated love. Now that's what we can all experience all the time as believers in the body of Christ. This dedicated love, John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We are commanded to love the things God loves. And we just talked about what does God love? He loves people. He loves us. He gave his son because he loves the world. So he loves us that we ought to also love one another. We're commanded to do that. We show this dedication. We show this dedicated love to Christ by seeking to keep his commands. Remember we talked about that, but then also being dedicated to one another. And so in this context, this is a very strange context that the world doesn't really have a context for. You know, we might play on the same team. And so we have a camaraderie but there's a different kind of affection when it comes to, or there should be a different kind of affection when it comes to the Christian body of believers. And let's just think about it. You know, Many of us come from very different backgrounds. We have different upbringings. We have different family heritages. Uh, if, if you get into a city, there's even different uh, races. We have different socioeconomics. Uh, so around the globe even, right? Uh, we can have instant fellowship with somebody from a different part of the United States from a different cultural context, from a different educational background, from a different racial identity, from a different gender, you know, men and women together. All of these things, even within this room, I mean, my testimony, my background is so much different than some of yours. Generationally, 
And so we have a dedicated love to one another as the body of believers. So this divine love finds itself played out in domestic love, the, the love that happens in the family. It finds itself played out in the dedicated love that we have for one another. It also finds itself, and maybe, maybe this is most important, uh, that's arguable, I guess, and if you're in a small group, you can talk about that in your small group, right? It finds itself in something I'm referring to as divergent love. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, I'm glad that you asked. What I mean by that is, is, is this. Matthew 5, 43 through 48 says this. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, the world doesn't have a term for that. The world says, hate your enemy and pray for their destruction. Christ says, love your enemy and even pray for those who persecute you. That is a divergent love. That is a divine love. Brother or sister, that's the, that is the way that we know that we are producing, at least partially, this, the fruit of the Spirit, when we can practice divergent love. Yeah, blessed are the peacekeepers. Amen. You see, the world has no answer for this because this world does not know this kind of love. This is a divine love. So for our first spiritual fruit, 1 John 3, 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. So as we look at this first fruit of love, we have the description, it's divine, absolutely, and it finds itself in domestic, dedicated, divergent kind of love. So the next fruit of this spirit that we're going to talk about today is joy. Now you have to understand that joy is beyond happiness. Happiness and joy are not always the same thing. Our sister can attest to that. I'm sure there were times as they were going through all of this where there was no happiness or at very least uh, very minimal happiness. However, I'm sure that there was still joy. So believers are called upon to rejoice in all circumstances, 1 Thessalonians 5.16, trusting that God is working all things for good, right? So what I must ask first is what is your perception of joy. Because just like love, we have to understand our perception of joy may be wrong. What the world promises as joy, Romans 6.21, but what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. You see, the world promises joy in things like sex, money, power, uh, entertainment, distraction, distortion. That's where they promise joy. They say, hey, you want to have joy? Here's what you need to do. You need to be your most authentic self. And what that means is you get to choose what is true for you to heck whatever is actually true scientifically or biblically or otherwise. You get to pick what's true for you and you need to live that truth to the fullness of it, to wherever that takes you. And that's where you're going to find joy. And unfortunately, not even the secular statistics mesh with that. Because that's a lie. That's the same lie, right, that Satan told Adam and Eve in the garden. Hey, God says that this is right, this is true, this is joy, but what you should do is take from that anyway and take your own way. So the world promises joy in those things, but all is fleeting. Now, after Galatians, we're going to go into the book of Ecclesiastes. I want to read to you two sections of Ecclesiastes. It is, I believe, the theme of Ecclesiastes, and I know this because I've been reading through it. You should too. But also because, as you're going to see here in just a minute, Ecclesiastes 1.14, so the beginning of Ecclesiastes, 
It goes all the way to chapter 12, okay? But in, verse, in chapter 11, these are the things that Ecclesiastes says. If you don't know, I believe King Solomon, right? The wisest man outside of Jesus who has ever lived, uh, wrote Ecclesiastes towards the latter end of his life after he had done all the crazy stuff that he had done and lived the life that he has lived. Here's his conclusion, okay? Ecclesiastes 1.14, the beginning of the book. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. What an upbeat message, right? Thank you. And if that's not good enough for you, uh, Ecclesiastes 11.8, so if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many, and all that comes is vanity. Thank you, King Solomon. I appreciate that. So the wisest man who's ever walked the face of the globe, who had more money, more power, more influence, more wives than anyone else should ever have, right? At the end of his life, he understood that the world's perception of joy is utterly vain and fleeting. And so we have to go to the word to understand where joy comes from. And to understand the perception of joy, then we have to look at what God's plan of joy is. God's plan of joy is this. 1 John 1, 4. This is what he says. And we are writing these things to you that our joy may be complete. That's very interesting. John is writing something to those who are going to read it so that John's joy can be complete. So then we must ask this question. What is giving John joy? What would give him complete joy? And what is it that he's writing to them that he thinks would bring them joy? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Here's what he says, in essence. Christ brings joy. You have to remember, for thousands of years before he appeared, right? I mean, from Genesis, he says, there's going to be a snake crusher. There's going to be a serpent slayer. There's going to be somebody who's going to reconcile, who's going to bring you back to the garden. And they waited and they waited and they waited. And then there was more uh, revelation that was given. And it's going to be a, a spotless lamb. It's going to be a sacrifice. Instead of your son who you love, I'm going to provide my son who I love. And then they waited and they waited and they waited. And then they were in exile and they were out of exile. And then they did what was right in their own eyes. And they did what's in, they hired kings. or they, I guess they, you can't hire a king. They, you elect a king, I guess. And then they rule over you. And then, and then they still followed after this. And then in a little town in Bethlehem, Jesus was born. Woo! Yes. And so Christ brings joy absolutely. And then Christ offers joy. And so throughout his life, that's what Jesus was doing. His ministry was a ministry of joy. He was reconciling families. He was bringing people back from dead. He was healing disease. He was giving sight to the blind. He was making the mute speak. He was telling about the freedom. And all of those things, all those miracles, that's great. But all of that, Jesus would say, those are of secondary importance to the message that he was bringing, which was, which is, you can have salvation through him. This is what he offers. Christ offers joy. Christ secures joy. Are you noticing a theme? So Christ brings joy. He offers joy. Christ secures joy in what he did on the cross. His sacrifice is sufficient. What he said on the cross is, it is finished. You know what that means? That the debt has been paid, that all those that would come to believe in him would have a place. He has done all the work. Everything is done. He is now going to go on to glory after he is resurrected. He's going to ascend to be at the right hand of the Father. Why? So he can wait until his enemies are made a footstool. And so that's also Christ completes joy. 
So those is that those that is what John is writing. He says, and we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. What is the completion of John's joy? That y'all, that we, that they, that we would know that Christ is the plan of joy. The whole of scripture find their yes in Christ. All of that is building towards him. That's the plan of joy. The plan of joy is that you would come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that through his death, burial, resurrection, that your sins would be forgiven so that God could have a relationship with you through Christ so that Christ's spirit would dwell in you so that this fruit of the spirit, love and joy would grow in you. It's all Christ. That's why, you know, okay, so submit to Christ. That's that 5%, 95% let Christ dwell in you, right? So you come, nothing to the cross I, I bring, right? Only to the cross I cling. And then the rest of it, we just continuously die to self and allow Christ to live in us, right? So this perfect plan of joy is active in us by the power of joy. Philippians 4.4, 4. rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. How do we do that? This might be a surprise to you. So Christ brings joy. He offers joy. He secures joy. He completes joy. Did you know that Christ also sustains joy? That's the power of joy. So the plan of joy finds its activity. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. How can you do that? only by the power of Christ. That is how we have joy in sickness. That is how we have joy in sorrow and suffering. Think of those who have went before us, dearly beloved. Think of Job. Job had a rough shake, didn't he? And some of us may very well be able to relate to the book of Job. Think of Paul. Paul had a rough shake too. But we don't need to go that far. I mean, just think of people in your own life. Think of your grandma or your grandfather. Think of your aunt or your sister, or your uncle, or your niece. You see, there is a divine ability for Christians to experience the fruit of the Spirit in joy in a way that the world cannot understand. Because Christ is the one who sustains that joy. John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you, this is Jesus, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You see, Christ sustains our joy as well as bringing it to us in the first place. So, lastly, finally, according to our text for this morning, 22 through 23 there, but mainly 22, I want to finish with talking about peace. Peace beyond the world's understanding that should rule the Christian hearts. Peace is a state of freedom from anxiety, inner turmoil, and all the rest. This is peace between man and God, peace between man and man, peace between man and their, and their inner self. So ultimate peace can only be found in Christ. So this is firstly the peace of our salvation, the peace in our salvation. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. 
So the peace in our salvation comes only through Christ. This is peace in our forgiveness. He has atoned for my sin. I am now forgiven. The old life that I lived and all the filth and all the dirt is now gone. And in fact, that carries forward. It's not a, it's not a one and done kind of thing. It's a forgiveness that, at a point, so for me, I don't know when yours is, for me, January 1st, 2007, that's when I became a Christian. That's when I said, yes, I need that. I don't want this. I want that. Where I turned to the Lord, he became my Lord and Savior. I, I had head knowledge before that. I now had a heart relationship upon that date. I was born again. So does that mean that I never sinned again? Well, just ask my wife. The answer is no, I did sin again. But that forgiveness covered everything before that, January 1st, 2007, everything before that day. And that forgiveness carries on and will cover everything else before then because we have peace in our forgiveness through Christ. But it's more than just forgiveness because we also, and we should be having, peace in our salvation should mean peace in following Christ. He's the good shepherd, right? He's going to lead us besides still waters. He's going to lead us to green pastures. So peace in our salvation is for our forgiveness, but also our following, and also peace in our fellowship. And I don't just mean this fellowship, although this is great, right? Don't get me wrong. This is great, and I love you guys, and I look forward to Sundays, and I look forward to when we hang out and, and do those kind of things, and some of you should invite us over more. That's, I'm just saying. But, but anyway, um, so peace in our fellowship, absolutely, but also, really, peace, peace in this fellowship, peace in my fellowship with the Lord. Peace in your fellowship with the Lord. Do you enjoy talking to your God? Talking to your Jesus who loves you? Talking, I, how many of you think about it that way? How many of you think about when you're talking to him that you're talking to your Jesus? How many of you, when you read your Bible, are thinking, hey, my Jesus is talking to me? You see, this is peace in our fellowship, that sweet, sweet fellowship with the one who died for us, with the one who loves us. So peace in our salvation is peace in our forgiveness, absolutely. It's peace in our following him, knowing that he has our best interest at heart, and it's peace in our fellowship with him. And so because of Christ, all those, that, the, the peace in salvation then leads us to peace in our security. Because he has told us, see, this is what he says in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, that is the security in our salvation. Nobody can take it from us. He's never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us. That's what he said. That's not me. That's him. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. That's what he said, not me. I'm going to prepare a place for you so that you can come and be with me. That's what he said, not me. This is the peace in our security that once saved, always saved. Our minds can be free of worry. Oh, how I wish I could practice that more. Our minds can be free of doubt. Oh, how I wish I could practice that more. Our minds can be free of fear. Oh, how I wish I could practice that more. But that peace is born out of my submission to the leading of the Holy Spirit and understanding that He's got this. Whatever this is. He's got my worry. He's got my doubt. He's got my fear. He's got my hopes. He's got my dreams. My Jesus loves my children far more than I do. And he loves my wife more than I do too. And he loves y'all more than I do too. 
And so when I pray for y'all, I can entrust y'all to my Jesus. And that's the peace in our security. And so then lastly, for this morning anyway, the security we have in our salvation through Christ ought to lead us ultimately to a satisfaction because of this peace. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, for the conviction of things not seen. Satisfaction because I know I have a future. I know I have an inheritance. I know I have a place of rest. So I can be satisfied in this life. I can be satisfied as I grow older and my body decays because I know, guess what? There's a brand new model waiting for me. I can be satisfied with uh, my interactions with everybody here on this world, even though they often fall short, because I know one day all of that sin will be stripped away and we will have perfect fellowship. I can be satisfied with my hunger or my thirst or my sickness or my health or my lot in life because I know that this is not the end. This is, this is merely, Scripture tells us, merely a vapor. And that one day, right now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see fully face to face. That right now I, I live and I'm trapped uh, in this corrupt world that also groans just like I do, along with other people that groan just like I do, that are muddling through this just like I do. But that one day, all of those things are going to be removed. Every tear from every eye is going to be stripped away. That I will be in perfect glory with my Father who is in glory because the Son shares that glory with me. That I will have an inheritance and a future and a forever rest with Him. And I don't have to worry about anything. And that should bring great satisfaction to all of us. John 14, 27, and if, if you know your Bible, you're probably like, hey, that's the scripture that you should have read about peace. Well, you're right, and here it is. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You see, this is the peace that Jesus gives. This is the peace that he has left with you. This is not the peace that the world gives. We understand that the world may bring tribulation, it may bring trouble, it may bring trial. But what he says is, just keep in step with the Spirit. And when you do, that's your 5%. Just allow the Father to shine forth his 95%. And grow that fruit of the Spirit in you. Because in Christ, we understand what love is. In Christ, we understand what joy is. In Christ, we understand what peace is. And in Christ, we can experience and have all of those things for not only now, but ultimately the fulfillment of all those is in eternity to come. I hope, like you, you're looking forward to the next three and the next three after that for these next coming weeks. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we do praise you and thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness to us. God, we thank you that it is in you that you have showed us what it is to love, that you have given your love to us. We thank you that in you we can experience real, true, lasting, eternal joys. We thank you that in you we have a framework and an understanding of and a practice of a peace that surpasses all understanding. God, our Father, we pray that you would help us submit daily 
to walking by your Spirit so that we might see and experience this production of your fruit in us. Help us, we pray, God. It's in your name. Amen.